you know, Tom, this apostasy now, it, every time I hear it, I, I get a little hungry. Apostasy, I don't know, it's just the pasta in it. I just want a carb overload. You know, it's funny that you say that because I just want to hack a fucking bowl to death with a machete. Yeah. You know, in a, in a, in a godforsaken jungle. So. I feel like I got the meatballs, you got the yeah, spaghetti. You just we wanna, got this You want to shave your head and just say, the horror. <laughs> the horror. You know, before we had entered, I thought this was the heart of darkness, yeah. but it was really just, it was the heartburn of darkness, yeah. as it turns yeah, exactly. out. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think at the very least, the conferences need to have, um, they, they, they need to have kind of a, a differentiation between, you know, kind of intro level, welcome to the community sort of uh, stuff, and then they need to have Okay, you're, you've been a part of this community. It's the fucking third TAM you've been to. You don't need to go to a talk about why, you know, possession isn't real. You're at TAM. You already know it's not real. That's a waste of an hour of your life. Let's move into some deeper, grayer, more complex areas. And let's get away from having a speaker and into having panels and into yeah. having workshops. Yeah. And you're not going to find that at a conference. You're just not right now the way they're structured. Yeah. I would love to see an Oxford-style debate that has, like... I don't know, like Rebecca Watson on one side and Thunderfoot on the other. I would love to see that. I would love to see those two, you know, try to hash this out, try to talk it out, try to figure it out. You know, I don't know. In a controlled, in a moderated control, environment. It's a moderated environment. It's not, I get my talk and I get to make my little video. It's, let's have a conversation. Let's figure it out. You know, I, th that shit makes me nuts. They're like, I'm going to fucking put my video up. And you're going to put your video up and our videos will fight each other. And it's like, man. Why don't we go in the same room? Yeah. I just, you know, because that's the sort of like road rage mentality. It's like as long as everybody's not in the same room, it's real easy to be like, I totally hate your guts! Yeah. Exclamation point one one one. Yep, I'm going to be a dick. And right. I can be a dick because it's 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 not that I'm anonymous, but I'm far enough a, a removed from you that I, I, I don't I don't have any kind of uh, sense of right. being civil. Yeah. I think when you get two people in a room that disagree, all of a sudden they're real polite. Yeah. And they they realize, oh, I'm talking to a human being. Yeah, I feel no like kidding, that. That's right? got to be true. No, I mean, isn't that the essence of intellectual debate? Is you don't take it personally. You look at each other and say, hey, man, we're on other sides of the of, of the topic here. Yeah. But this isn't about what this isn't about an attack on me as a human it's about you know here's some ideas i'm gonna i'm gonna fucking put my ideas out there i'm gonna pokemon my ideas like i fucking choose you and you choose yours and we'll see which one wins yeah and there it's that's honesty exactly. <laughs> bludgeon people oh yeah oh yeah for sure right well, I think Cecil and I both, you know, we I think we both generally believe in the in the beyond just the fact that it's fun. I think we both genuinely believe that, you know, humor is a powerful force in the world. Um, I I have no interest in, in being in a world or in you know or honestly in relationships of any kind with people that that have no interest yeah, in humor that are humorless. Yeah. Right. That's that's not a world. That's not a world I will create for myself at all. You yeah. know, humor is intensely powerful. Uncle, Uncle Buck. Buck. I remember flipping that fucking pancake oh, with a snow shovel. Love it. Love it. That's awesome. I'd eat that whole pancake. No. I'd power that thing down. You'd have to take it to Canada to get that much maple syrup, though. Yeah, sure. Well, if people want to find our show, they can go to dissonancepod.com. That's one word, dissonancepod. And uh, we, you can also find us on uh, on. Uh, any kind of aggregator for podcasts. Yeah. So iTunes, Stitcher, we're all over the place. 
Thanks for having us on, though. We do appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, man. What a pleasure. Thanks so much. I'll send you the separate mics. Let's sure. do the glee in his I voice. know. Gosh. He's I'll like, s- more work. Let's do more work. Was, Thanks again nice for the opportunity to, to be on your show. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>of apostasy now this week's guest was requested by a listener ashley williams the guest is thomas westbrook he's got a great youtube channel i highly recommend i'm subscribed to it it's called holy kool-aid he does animations with great voiceover work with a lot of really interesting content challenging a lot of sort of loosey-goosey notions that a lot of us hold we all should be striving towards questioning what we believe in a productive way and he does exactly that and he makes it great and entertaining he was a great guest we had a lot of fun Smashlock was here we caused a little bit of trouble but not too much so with that in mind remember this guest is here because our curiosity was piqued by a listener you can find us on twitter go to our webpage apostasynow.net if you haven't gone there you can find email opportunities you can find us on facebook yeah with that said welcome back to another episode of apostasy now Too many questions. I can pay for the information with his 500. He's worth more than that to me. 15,000. So I suggest you keep your distance. Because if you don't, I might get mad. I'm very much a skeptic. More, I'm, I'm more of a skeptic than I am an atheist. I mean, atheist is a conclusion based on my skepticism. So you'd be better if you were straight? Yes. Wow. Anybody so would be. That attitude is what is responsible for the rise of atheism. That's not what Islam is all about. Islam is peace. What is the penalty for leaving the Muslim faith? With a death penalty. Thank you. This is Apostasy Now. For people to get the information correct before they start yap, yap, yapping. Get ready to root for the bad guys. Resist it while you still can, and before the right to complain is taken away from you, which will be the next thing. And so this is going to be, uh, I'm assuming you guys do edits and stuff and post. Yeah, I don't edit for content is what I tell people. I edit just for quality. Like, if you ran off to go to the bathroom, I'd chop that up. Yeah. Especially if you took your microphone with you. <laughs> or maybe I wouldn't. <laughs> you, you mean people don't want to watch that? <laughs> you get those GoPros. <laughs> Virtual reality headset. <laughs> you can experience what I experience. Oh the holy Kool-Aid experience it's, it's, is 3D. It's so real. It's like I'm wiping my own ass. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you know, welcome to the show, Thomas. Uh, uh, we'll just say uh, up front, you have a YouTube channel that's uh, popular enough that one of our fans actually specifically requested I get in touch with you. So I was happy that you were able to come on. One fan. One. Yeah. We have one fan, and that one fan. <laughs> well, so I, I guess we we share our mutual fan. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think I have one. Yeah. yeah.
Well, either she was lying just just being nice, and uh, she's not really a fan, and then we have zero. But either way, oh. it was really nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the channel is uh, Holy Kool Aid. Do you uh, do you want to just give a little background about uh, you know why you started making your videos? You know, what, what, what it's all about for you. So I was a former missionary kid, and uh, I grew up overseas, traveled the world, and I thought that you know Jesus was the shit. Can I swear on your podcast? Yes. I should have asked. Yes, you may, sir. <laughs> <laughs> you fucking swear too much, though. <laughs> Don't want to get booted off an atheist show for swearing, you know. <laughs> I, I was a, a hardcore fundamentalist. I did, you know, all the raising my hand in church. I believed in faith healing. I believed in, in all of it. I'm probably as close to Pentecostal as you can get. Although I, n- I never really did speaking in tongues myself because – I felt like I was faking it and I didn't want to be disingenuous. Right. But after coming to the States, I was a youth pastor for a couple, um, or I was, I was a youth pastor for one summer, a church camp counselor for two summers. I was in a Christian fraternity. I was a church band leader. I did the whole, like as, as, as many different types of Christiany things that you can do. I I did that. This one time at Jesus camp. Sorry. (laughs) Oh, I mean, I yeah, I have a lot of those stories. <laughs> <laughs> but I had, around my senior year in, in college, I just fell in love with science. And I, I've always been curious. I've always had a lot of questions. And I started seeing that my questions weren't matching up with what I was learning. Yeah. And I wanted to go where the truth led because I figured that, you know, if the Bible was the perfect, unalterable word of God, all of the scientific facts would back it up and would, you know, it'd be substantiated in in all of the evidence around us. But that wasn't the case. And so when I finally realized, you know, I don't actually believe this anymore. It was kind of a while before I was like willing to identify as an atheist. It took me a couple years and I I flip flopped back and forth. But I think that that going through that long process really helps you to solidify um, your worldview, to understand why you believe something, and to have a more well-rounded perspective. Yeah. Oh, I agree. I, I, had, I had a similar kind of arc. Yeah. It's like when whenever I would you know be living overseas, you'd have a group of foreigners come in, and in the first week, they suddenly know all of the, the solutions to all of the country's problems and how to fix everything. <laughs> And you give them a couple of, of months and all of a sudden they start to kind of understand a, a little bit more about the culture and why people do things a particular way. And then they, they're like, oh, my culture in America is so messed up. We need to fix all this stuff. And they go back to the States with that that's, you know, opposite perspective yeah. looking you know, through the, the looking glass from the other end. And then they come to the States and then, you know, then you flip flop <laughs> back and forth and back and forth. And I think it's that that lifelong journey that, you know, transitioning and seeing, you know, as many different types of uh, – diametrically opposed positions and trying to understand them that you're able to kind of have a well-formed position somewhere in the middle yourself. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I can say it better myself. Uh, there's, uh, who's on South Park, isn't, uh, Miss Garrison when he's gone through the, the change, uh, that's one with Dawkins, right? And he, he hates anything to do with evolution. Then he gets a crush on Dawkins and then suddenly he hates creationism. (laughs) (laughs) It's an instant change. Then as soon as, Dawkins finds out that it was a man transitioned to a woman. He like runs away, and then she, in, you know, instantly 
Garrison immediately once again hates evolution. <laughs> in my own in my own life, I always try to look at life not through a lens, but through the kaleidoscope that it actually is. Because you can't you you can't put on a filter to something and then get an accurate read on on what it is. And my own education kind of pushed me in that direction because they were all about looking at something through a particular lens. And although I think that's useful in in individual instances, I don't think it gives a real accurate read of a culture or a position uh it, for reality it's just, it's it's not realistic to do that in life yeah yeah life is messy no, life you, is messy you just don't know all the key answers that's, that's true i don't know you got to get the short form off of google I'm working on it. <laughs> <laughs> so so you're having like mic issues and stuff this looks professional ish kind of and it <laughs> it, it sounds okay but what you don't see is, <clears throat> in order to get rid of some of the sound reverb, I flipped an air mattress on its head. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> and I've, I've sound padded, sound padded the room with like sheets and blankets and stuff. Nice. And Our even put like, <laughs> yeah, even like at the door, I put you know a, a comforter thing you know right under the door, and, and I point the microphone away from where the noise is coming from. Sorry. Well, I'm thinking about using our other mics and getting a couple stands for them. Uh, if I can hook up directly my little audio thing, uh, what are those things called? It's like it's like a built has microphones. You can uh, it's really fancy. I got it for the conference I went to, and if I can directly connect the mics to that and then feed into the computer that we're using, then those mics will be a lot easier for us. We won't have to keep fiddling around with these. Right on. Yeah, that's awesome, dude. And that's also awesome that Christopher Hitchens is uh, watching over your shoulder. Oh yeah, <laughs> he, I gotta tell you, he doesn't look too amused. I think he's like, uh, these boys better not fuck up. <laughs> I could could scoot him that way a bit. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so so um, okay, yeah. So let's see. So with Holy Kool Aid, with the name of the channel, in case we haven't said it, uh, you use. Uh, I love your animations. You use it makes it a lot easier. Everything you're talking about. If someone doesn't understand what you're saying, it's because they're either not paying attention to the video. While it's playing or they don't want to understand uh so you know like when did you decide that uh, animation would be the way that you're gonna usually go well i can't draw for shit but <laughs> i i remember stumbling across years ago um a channel called minute physics and there was uh, minute earth and there were a couple of other animated uh, videos that basically they even have in their description a quote by einstein that says if you can't explain something simply you don't understand it well enough yeah. and I wanted to take topics, you know, like uh, evolution and how we know that it's true and misconceptions about it. The fine tuning argument, you know, that's so easy for creationists to just jump on board with. But I don't see these concise explanations in order to try to understand, you know, where the universe came from. You have to to sift through a, a giant book by Lawrence Krauss, you know, looking through technical physics terms and, and it just blows right over most people's head. And so I wanted to take some of these concepts and really break them down and show, you know, why I'm an atheist, why I feel that science backs up my position, and then make it so that the the layperson on the street who has no background in science could watch it and kind of grasp it and understand it. Yeah. Well, I mean, mission accomplished. <laughs> Thanks. The, the, the science-heavy ones, you know, I might have a five-minute science-y video that takes me a month to make. And in between yeah. then, I'll because I'm doing a weekly video, I might do three rants for everyone that's you know heavy on the science. Yeah, well, I've only done a little bit of animation. I don't know. There's different ways that people go about it, and I suspect uh, because I'm only a dabbler that I have not found the most effective programs for it. 
But uh, the one that I used, uh, I on and off, it took a year to make the animation. Wow. And uh, well, a lot of it has to do with the fact that I need to upgrade my computer, which I'm doing now. But even beyond that, I know it's a lot of work uh, for me. Okay, so mine was spoiled because it was lacy green. Uh, so <laughs> I did this thing, uh, Mr. Dragonbeard's uh, evil. I make evil clones, and then they they decide how to save the world from some perceived problem. And she ruined it because my evil clone of Lacey Green now, she's doing this whole thing where she's trying to be open-minded. <laughs> that was like a month after I got it done. I was like, damn it, that was like over a year of on not work. Could, could you tweak the animation slightly and make it like Anita Sarkeesian or someone instead? <laughs> yeah, she ain't changing. Yeah, so that, well, maybe she'll be my next one if I ever make another one. And I'll start with the Lacey yeah. Green clones. Like, I'm not evil anymore. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's it's funny because as as much as I, you know, I'm able to look at, you know, some of the, the radical third wave feminists and um, commentate on it in a hopefully objective way and, you know, still be a little critical of their approach. I try to avoid feminism for the most part on my channel because I think it it oftentimes detracts from, you know, the overall message of trying to promote curiosity and science and I, I try not to be polarizing i try not to yeah you know i try to avoid identity politics as much as i can yeah it <laughs> seems like anyone who has like i remember armored skeptic originally was all about straight up talking about uh, skepticism <clears throat> uh, more heavy on the on the science and the religion and then as soon as he opened up the bag a little bit this is i think pretty common to talk about feminism it seemed like he just got pulled right down that rabbit hole uh it's pretty common so i mean it's it's a valid choice is what i'm saying well, I think part of it is um, that tends to get a lot of views and shares because oh, people are a lot a lot less likely to share an atheist-related video because it's not really normalized yet. But <clears throat> you have people all across the religious spectrum who may be pro-SJW or anti-SJW, and they'll share it left and right. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> but, you know, it's, it's popular. It's pop. <laughs> yeah. We talk about it a lot, but that's just because it annoys us. <laughs> Um, I, I don't know. I, I, I can see the I, I see the arguments from both sides. I, I do think that there are people on both ends that go way overboard. Um, I, I understand that there there are certain things that, you know, I, I'm privileged in the sense that, you know, my parents were married my whole life. Um, they helped me you know go through college. Um, they, you know, it was not an emotionally abusive environment. Th those are things that some kids don't have. And so I would be incredibly arrogant to say like, oh, this is all 100% me and it has nothing to do with my upbringing or my nature or my nurture. Um, and that I was just all hard work. Uh, but I do think that there are people who take, you know, the whole, you can't talk about this because you're privileged to a bit of an extreme and to, to the point where they're silencing free speech and uh, there should be a happy medium somewhere. Yeah, the the well, a lot of these things are, are like you say they're they're sort of pop. So a term will become really popular for a time. A lot of videos will go out. Um, they're, they're kind of like keywords, right? They, they press people's buttons. So uh, privilege is one. Often when people start uh, talking about privilege, uh, I find the conversation incoherent. <laughs> yeah, like they're not precise. Like, what do you mean by privilege? How are you applying this term? They just assume that everyone's going to know what they're talking about. And that there should be no discussion about it. Uh, well, and I, I think where a lot of the the contention comes is that there's not a unified understanding of terms. So if someone identifies as a feminist, are they second wave feminist? Are they third wave feminist? You know, even okay. someone like Milo identifies as a second wave feminist. 
Yeah. But, you know, if, if you come out on your channel and you're like, yay, feminism, you could be, you know, all for uh, women's bodily autonomy in the Middle East where they don't have control over their own birth cycle and their husband can rape them. And that's, you know, good for you for standing up for them and for being a feminist in that regard. And yet simultaneously, if, if you use that term, you're thrown into this category of, you know, man-hating, misandristic um crazy feminazis <laughs> so it's just finding a way to you know if, if we had a, a better you know unified understanding of the terms that we use yeah. then i think a lot <laughs> of the contention would dissipate and as, i don't know if it's like this in every language but in english it seems to me from the way people talk about it they're they speak more than one language that english we seem to be a language that really loves using only one word for a whole lot of things. <laughs> like a good example would be, well, in slang, we have like the word fuck and the word shit, but uh, yeah. even in regular language, uh, good language or pr proper language, we have a word like love. Like love can be a shitload of things. Uh, whereas other languages uh, try to at least break it down into a couple different, you know, specific types of uses. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's, isn't it? Um, the, the Inuits in up in like Alaska have like 30 words for snow. Uh, I've heard that. I've heard that, <laughs> but I am never going to go and ask them. <laughs> it's too fucking cold. Or, or Germany has a incredible just lexicon of like weird. Uh, so, so if you, if you just type in and Google like weird German words, there's like, here's one, uh, Fernway it's distance pain. <laughs> <laughs> it's like home. It's like homesickness or a longing for a place uh, that isn't where you are right now. Oh, okay. so, but uh, I don't know if that applies to people or, or whatnot. There's <laughs> apparently a word called grief bacon. Grief <laughs> <laughs> I want grief bacon now. <laughs> Maybe that's the bacon that uh, just doesn't turn out quite right. On <laughs> grief bacon. My dad died this morning. <laughs> It's so good, this bacon. <laughs> would, you, would you like cheese and grief bacon on that burger? Now, is, what I want to know is, is it referring to comfort food or is it, <laughs> or is it withdrawal? Right. <laughs> like that fancy ice cream, uh, what's that called? I don't know. What's the fancy ice cream? haagen It's grief ice, ice cream. <laughs> No, I'm sure. I'm sure that they actually have probably two words. They have comfort bacon and grief bacon. <laughs> Once you're done with the grief bacon, you get to move on to the second stage of uh, the comfort bacon, <laughs> then the recovery bacon. Is <laughs> it a gradient state like stages of crispiness? <laughs> No, waitress, I want the I want the the grief bacon. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, it must oh, be you, a rough week. <laughs> you you good for you, Thomas. You've reached acceptance bacon. <laughs> Do you have they're, in the middle? Their right? dictionaries just have a chart with crispy <laughs> factor. The different emotional stages of bacon. <laughs> Stage one is denial. <laughs> denial bacon. <laughs> Why, why does this sound like we're sitting on a New York Times bestseller? <laughs> <laughs> the bacon that tells you who you are. <laughs> the bacon. <laughs> bacon identity. <laughs> Plot twist. It's a muscle. <laughs> wow. This interview just took a shot. <laughs> just went <laughs> Any Jewish viewers we may have had have turned off long ago. <laughs> they, 
they they want that grief bacon so badly that it'll send it straight to hell. <laughs> we'll, we'll create regret bacon for them. <laughs> shame bacon. Shame, shame bacon. <laughs> That's just turkey bacon. Oh yeah, that is the turkey. Or to oh, what do they call it? Tofacon. Or to, to bacon or something. Tofurky. You know, let's say anything tofu. It's not me. Give it up. Uh, Milo would be so mad that we bumped them off the bestsellers list. <laughs> now now they're making um, beef, like hamburger patties that are actually grown in a lab out of actual beef cells. And I think that's kind of cool. Yeah, they did that in Japan. They, they they cultured them, and the guy who actually made them, he, he ate a burger from it, and he said it doesn't have the same texture to it, but that it tasted it'll all get, right. It'll get there then. Yeah. If they can deliver the nutrition that's that's normally found in it. or Yeah. I, I well, looked at it when he was when they had it, when it was just in the Petri dish, like the video, and it, it was like, wow, that looks like slop. But once well, they the, cooked it. The initial idea when I heard about it is gross. Yeah. But then... If you think about the way that your regular meat gets there, if you had to sit there every day while the things were being all slaughtered and smelling the blood and hearing the cries, it would probably be kind of gross, too. <laughs> I wonder if PETA will still protest. Um, uh, Did he turn off his mic? No. Yeah, I'm sorry. I cut out for a second. <laughs> can you hear us now? I, I can hear you. Uh, what would you say before, though? Oh, uh, we were making jokes about PETA. I don't think they were very funny, though. No. <laughs> <laughs> just like PETA themselves. Not no, very funny. You, you mentioned the cultured meat, and I just, you know, all of a sudden jumped into the, in my head, was this argument that they have against animal cruelty. If you can grow any type of meat cell that you want, what would be their argument against the consumption of meat then? I don't think if, that they would have one. Yeah. Well, I'm sure they try. If if they did, it would they would be seen kind of as crazy as some of the the religious nuts who say that you know a little cluster of twelve stem cells in a petri dish is a human being or a human soul. Right. You know, if if it doesn't have a brain, if it doesn't have you know any kind of pain receptors or any way of feeling pain, then there's no suffering. Right. It was never alive. It was it was grown on some sort of scaffold that made it into the shape that vaguely remember, uh, resembles the meat product that we most enjoy. What do you guys think about Japan's turd burgers? <laughs> You're going to have to fill me in. <laughs> and I really don't want to be filled in with turd burgers, but about them? Yes, please. I think I'm going to need grief bacon after this. Better to be filled in than filled up with one of these. Right. But it it's probably a hoax, but there was a story a while back that Japan was trying to like take um, different types of like excrement and you know, refine it and recycle it into food. Oh, but I, I you know, you're, For you're space program. <laughs> they may want to, they may want to Snopes that, but it's a uh, part of their, the space program efforts. <laughs> I mean, I, if, if I've, I've never heard of this before. Um, if you've read burgers. the, have you guys read the Martian? Andy, yeah. Weir? he, you know, he uses, uh, that as like a fertilizer for the potatoes. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I can understand using human excrement to grow food, but to make it into food? I mean, maybe I'm splitting hairs here, because I mean, that nutrients in, in the turd will go into the potato just as quickly as anything else, but it's, I don't know, maybe it just makes me feel a little bit better at night thinking that that potato isn't shit. <laughs> <laughs> this food tastes like shit! Yes! Good! Uh, <laughs> How could you tell? <laughs> Did you put ketchup on? Tastes better. <laughs> I don't know. There's there are some people whose uh, food is hardly uh, distinguishable. Oh man, I've seen some <laughs> so weird. We've gone weird from foods. figurative shit that we order 
to literal shit. <laughs> and this all started with grief bacon. Yes. <laughs> this all started with grief bacon. So I'm going to try and shift gears here. <laughs> so uh, I, I'm not sure if Dragonbeard asked, but what, what got like you, you wanted to start making animated videos. What was your inspiration for that again? Just because you love, have a love of science. Uh, that was a huge part of it. Uh, also, because I had bought into all of the young earth creationist Kool-Aid, so to speak, I felt a little bit of a um, obligation to share what I had learned with other people who were similarly deceived or who maybe just didn't know the opposing arguments but were just as open to the truth as me. And initially, it was kind of a coming out process. I just wanted to have a few videos that I could share with family members and say, you know, hey, here's why I don't believe this. Here's why I don't believe in hell. Here's why I believe in evolution. But pretty early on, you know, I started, I, I read the Bible cover to cover, and I just saw a whole lot of messed up, crazy stories that, you know, I hadn't really, I'd read them before, you know, like Noah's Ark, but I hadn't read them objectively. Yeah. And when I did that, in a framework, a scientific framework, I started seeing all these crazy things like, you know, oh, wait, what are the dimensions of this boat? It's like about the, the square footage of a football field. And they have how many millions of species of animals on there. And, you know, yeah. even if it was, you know, <laughs> Ken Ham says, oh, there was only 10,000. It's like, OK, well, to get from 10,000 to the number of species that we have today, evolution would have had to have been taking off at an extremely rapid rate. Yeah. Uh, right. And and yet he's saying, you know, oh, speciation never occurs and they only stay within their kinds. And that's just not possible. Yeah. And I, I you actually shared with me specifically a video that's really good for uh, yeah, I don't think you've watched it, but uh, it's really good for explaining kind of where he comes from. And yeah. a lot of stuff he's probably going to be talking to us about today. Uh, so when I put links to your channel on the show notes for the stuff I put up, I will specifically put that uh, video as well for anyone who wants to do more listening and and see him floating in space as an astronaut while he's talking. <laughs> <laughs> to, to quote Futurama, there's times when I don't want to live in this planet anymore. Yeah. <laughs> are you, just out of curiosity, are you familiar with uh, anyone from Grand Unified? Uh, they're like a creative collective. They've got uh, a lot of hip hop. So they've got Tombstone, The Dead Man. They've got uh, Grain Square, Adequate. You ever heard of those guys? I, I know the, the artists. I wasn't familiar with the collective. Yeah, they, well, it's, it's a loose collective. They just kind of share their talent and they try to cross-promote and stuff like that. Uh, you'd probably be more familiar with what they do if the community actually seemed to care. <laughs> they have a really hard time getting... Uh, uh, there's a, When I talk to them, uh, the atheist community, the skeptic community, which they're really interested in and they talk about a lot in their work, for some reason, there's still the idea that if you do rap music, you're a criminal or you're promoting crime. <laughs> Atheist privilege. In the skeptic community, apparently they've been told this flat out, we're not going to invite you to this conference because people are going to think that we're promoting wow. criminal behavior. That's that's <laughs> kind of nuts because most atheists, I mean, I've been doing the full circuit. I was just at uh, ReasonCon, Imagine No Religion, I'm going to Gateway to Reason and the American Atheists Annual Convention in August. And pretty much all of them seem to be really just open and accepting of you know, you'll you'll see people there who are you know transgender. You'll see people there who are are gay, all different races, ethnicities. You know, but that's kind of surprising that they would you know hold off well, on any kind of rap. That's what I think the real concern is. It's unwarranted with these guys because they are pro diversity, they're pro gay, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but yeah. I think there's a concern that they'll be doing a song or a set on on the stage and they'll say something that'll offend people, and then they'll get all kinds of complaints and a lot of conflict. 
I think it's unwarranted if these people would just listen to their music, check out well, the material. Can't, can't they just the the organizers screen the particular songs and say which ones are you going to play? You know, yeah, yeah we'll, we'll that's what I'm wondering. Green, Why green light just... this one, red light that one. Well, even if they if they just I, I think if they were familiar with their work in particular, like if they just listened through their music, they'd know that their concerns weren't warranted. Because I don't, well, I can't well, think of any of their songs that would upset anyone really. So there's uh, Gateway to Reason has uh, Stephen Tally Cass, and they're uh, a metal. I believe they're they're metal rock. I haven't heard a whole lot of their music, but that's interesting that they would have them, but that they would shy away from. from well, I know in Great in Square's case, he was at a skeptics <clears throat> conference once, and I don't know the details. When he, was, when he was on our show, he talked to us about this, hmm. that he actually punched somebody and then he actually got charged for it. Yeah. What? Yeah. There was a grievance. Like he was there and he was promoting his material. I guess another skeptic had bought his material and was selling it there as well. Like his, his own CDs were being sold at another location by someone else. Uh, I don't know the details, but whatever it was, Graydon is somebody who was raised. Uh, he was an orphan. He did a lot of stuff on the street. Then he was in the military and he regrets it now, you know, like he's, he's paid his dues and he's, he's sorry he did it. And he, he actually said on our show, if people in our community aren't willing to forgive someone, then how does that make us better than religious people who are willing to forgive? Mm. Yeah. Um, but at the time, anyways, all I can imagine is that he went up to this guy and a lot of us in the skeptics community are big mouths, right? And the guy probably was just like, fuck you or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and he just, pop. Just clocked him. <laughs> so, you know, in his case, um, I still think that they shouldn't hold that against him because, like I said, like he's talked about this before and stuff, and it's been, a, you know, something he's tried to put in his past. No, no, wait a second. Before. Was the guy a Nazi? <laughs> well, I, can, I think the guy was white and Gray is black, so I think that automatically means the other guy was the Nazi. So it would have worked well. <laughs> Hang on, let's get Dan Errol in here to talk about this. <laughs> So I, I, I do have a question for you. So um, Mr. Dragonbeard has informed me, and, and I have no reason to doubt him, because I believe everything that he tells me. I am a cult leader. Yeah. <laughs> That's a lie. Um, for no, for but the anyways, one fan? You're right. For the one fan. I have one cult follower. One <laughs> cult follower. I was the fan that asked. That, was- <laughs> that, just, sounds like, that just sounds like marriage to me. <laughs> I do see him more than my wife. Um, so... Your position on freedom of speech, uh, he seems to indicate to me that, that you are very pro-free speech. Is there anything yeah. about free speech that you well, think should be limited is the question I would have. Well, and, Any limits? And while you're answering, um, just for anyone who's listening to this, the, the connection that I made is, just to make it really clear, is that there's a connection between free speech and free thought. And I think that's kind of where your name of your channel comes from, right? Is, is that anyone who's not willing or able to question then doesn't know the force that basically then controls them because they can't question it. Mm-hmm. Well, so I was, because I was raised in the former Soviet Union, I saw a lot of corruption and I saw a lot of opinions silenced and censorship, and especially in the media, particularly about the president or about religion. And so I'm very much opposed to any kind of top-down censorship. I think that if we have a platform, we do have a certain responsibility to you know, not spread hate and fear and stuff. Are people still, do they still have the right to spread those things and to, to share their opinions? Yeah. And I'll fight for the right for anyone to, to spread an idea, even if I disagree with it. Yeah. Where, where I think that the line should be drawn, you know, it's, it's, it's so hard to make it just black and white, you know, in this case you do this, in this case you don't, because there's so many overlapping gray zones, but 
you know, when someone starts calling for violence yeah. and saying, you know, yep. go out and, and attack this person, here's their address, here's, you know, find them, burn their yes. house to the ground. I agree. You know, I would draw a line there. Incitement of violence, uh, you know, things like that, that are already illegal, things like uh, yelling fire in a crowded theater and, and inciting panic. You know, th- those we already have those obstacles in place for someone, you know, utilizing their their they have the freedom of speech, but they, there's also consequences for for doing something illegal. Yeah. Hey, Thomas Westbrook here here to bring you the topsy-turvy, titillating tale of Holy Kool-Aid. That right there, that's me. Well, a long time ago, I was raised in a former Soviet Muslim country, and I have always been a curious little bastard. The more I traveled, the more questions I had. Like, Catholics got me wondering why people wear a Jew on a stick. In Turkey, I found myself asking if they really thought that there were curses and that a shiny blue lump of glass would somehow ward them off. Why did Azerbaijani taxi drivers hang thorns on their mirrors? And in Russia and Kazakhstan, why were people so scared of whistling inside? This was a strange little world I was born into, but I was determined to figure it out. Most of the time, people had no hesitation in answering my questions. What a marvelous planet filled with discoveries. Everyone seemed pretty cool with this lifelong game of Q&A, but pretty early on I stumbled across the first exception to that rule. Why does the president have so many billboards of himself all over town, I asked? If this country is so rich in oil money, how come none of it is trickling down? Why is there so much corruption? Surely I wasn't the only one asking these questions. Everyone talked about how great the president was. But the second you dug deeper, they'd hastily rep- with, shh, we don't question the president here. This isn't America. If we question the government, we'll lose our jobs, our homes, and maybe even end up in jail. Huh, but if he was so great, a little scrutiny wouldn't change that. Was the president hiding something? Uh, Hitchens actually uh, was in Canada and I believe, what was it, 2006? And around there, around Yeah, it was 2006 or, or 2007 anyways, mm-hmm. and he actually brought up the, <laughs> the, 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 the case about... Um, Yelling fire in a crowded theater. Yeah, he actually opened up by going, fire, fire. So I don't know if I'll go as, uh, as far as to agree that, that that should be a problem. Because he pointed out a lot of um, structural errors in the way that that case was handled, um, at least in the brief summary that he gave during yeah. his speech. But otherwise, I agree with what he said. Well, that's why he started this. It's hard to have a black and white. I think that's what, that's all Hitchens was doing with that, is just saying, like, there are circumstances you have to take into account. Right. Sometimes... <laughs> <laughs> just leave it. It's... <laughs> yeah. Just it's leave it commit... Don't even cut that it's, out. It's Don't trying to commit suicide. We should just let it. <laughs> It's like, no, I'm the quiet, I'm the quiet, Mike, there's nothing worth living for. This interview is so bad, the mics are trying to kill themselves. <laughs> Got a, a, a kamikaze mic over there. <laughs> but uh, speaking uh, of fun yeah. words in other languages. <laughs> oh, here we go. <laughs> yeah, so in his case, he's clearly pointing out that yelling fire, fire, in his case, no one took it serious. Right. But if somebody was in like a... a uh, crowded uh, auditorium and started screaming and yelling and convinced everyone that you know, it was meant, say these days it'd be probably bomb right or gunman you know like if someone was dressed up and was like oh Akbar and they had a fake bomb right and they're screaming and yelling and everyone started trampling each other some people got hurt maybe someone got, even got killed because there were so many people running and charging uh, when they caught this guy and he was like dude it wasn't even a real bomb oh, not even a Muslim it wouldn't matter because uh. <laughs> Because the consequences in, in in his case, as opposed to Hitchens' case, would be you created a panic. Yeah, and it was clearly intentional to to 
cause mischief. Mm-hmm. But so yeah, so that that kind of accurately what you mean? Yeah, I would say something along those lines. Or if you're inciting a, a riot or you know some type of, yeah. of violence. But again, there's a lot of gray zones. Yeah, like saying it's in the OK boxes. We don't like this policy of the government. Let's meet up here and we'll hold up science and chant that we don't like it. On the bad side would be, hey, we don't like this guy who put this law in. This is where he lives. Go do what you got to do. <laughs> or, um, oh, God, I forget which which king it was. It was like Henry the Fifth that said, you know, who will, will rid me of this meddlesome priest or something like that. And the next day the priest was dead. And he just said it kind of like in a passive way, but he knew that there were people yeah. sitting there listening and taking yep. him seriously. And that's the kind of speech that, you know, it's like it, he didn't literally tell them. He didn't literally incite violence, but they knew damn well, you know, what he meant. Yeah. And yeah, it absolutely. led to, to someone's execution. It, it now, was implied. If, yeah. if Donald Trump comes along and says something similar that causes someone to, you know, be bullied, harassed, attacked, even um, their house – you know, stalked and or burned or whatever. If he was like that, Nancy Pelosi. Well, it'd be a shame if somebody went to such and such address. Hmm. <laughs> exactly. I can't, I can't do a Trump impression if you can't tell. <laughs> oh, you you tried bigly. Bigly. Tried. <laughs> I made a huge effort. It was huge. People, people, they know my effort. They love my effort. I'm not, I'm known people ask effort. me to do it all the time. It's the best. It's huge. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had some little miniature hands to hold up. <laughs> uh, but yeah, this 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 through line that you have, and it's appropriate you have Hitchens looking over your shoulder because I have actually noticed that a lot of people who say they love Hitchens in the atheist and even skeptic communities don't really know the larger body of his work. So which which book is that? I can't really make up the the words. So this one is arguably essays. Yeah, um, but I. I just finished um, Hitch 22 and um, God is Not Great, and um, I'm reading a uh, letter to a young contrarian right now. And I've read a few of his other things, but... So yeah. he's, he's, he's great for you, though, like the, the, the work that you're doing, like I say, that through line. Because for him, what brought him to fighting religion, it, it's not like that was his starting point, you know? <laughs> like, when I decided that I really liked what Hitchens had to say in God is Not Great, I started looking into more of his stuff. And you start finding his principles, as, as he put it, his main principles, which is, uh, you know, his his main author that he liked to talk about was Orson Welles, uh, 1984. That's Orson Welles, uh, right? George, George Orwell. George Orwell. Uh, brain yeah. fart. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, that was his favorite author uh, to talk about because for Hitchens, there was this connection like you made between if they can stop you from talking or if they can tell you what you say, that's an effort to control what you think. Right. And, and, and this is, uh, for the last year and a half, Dragonbeard and I have been utterly consumed with what seems to be a very heavy-handed social engineering agenda here in Canada, where there's a whole lot of changes to um, some of the laws and procedural changes to uh, the way that yeah. courts handle things. What and, you can say, what you can't say. Right. Like, they're trying to eliminate the term mother and father from uh, the Ontario... Well, I'm gonna, education I'm, system, right? No, not the education system. It's uh, the Child Protection Act. They've made some changes to it, uh, Bill 89 for the province. And then in Canada, there's Bill C-16, which as much as people have tried to downplay it, I mean, if you read the, the, the law just as it's written, which was poorly written, and Jordan Peterson has gone on about this 
um, it almost forces certain people in a lot of instances to use pronouns that they might not otherwise agree even exist um, at threat of legal sanction. Is it is that stuff really legally binding though right now? Yet I, I'm not familiar. I'm not going to pretend like I'm an expert on Canadian law because I certainly am not. But I've heard well, some mixed positions on that. So it's it's understandable. In Canada, we have something called the Human Rights Tribunal. Have you heard of this uh, Orwellian nightmare? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so many so many ideas that are horrible start out with a, a that sound really good, right? You know, and even good intentions. So this is a body that the original idea is that a lot of people can't afford to go to a, like a real court with a real lawyer. So they're like, if there's a human rights violation under our charter of rights, this body would be able to decide whether, the, you know, first they try to arbitrate it or, or to, to negotiate it. They sit you down for mediation. And then if that doesn't work, they decide whether they'll hear your case. <clears throat> and a lot of cases are pretty, uh, okay, well, we have, we had Renee on the show and he, he took the, uh, the school board uh, to task for allowing Bibles to be distributed in public school. And they decided that that wasn't allowed because it goes against anyone who doesn't believe in Bibles. Like you can't either you have everybody distributing their materials or you have nobody doing it for religious purposes. And so there are a lot of good applications. However, because they're not an actual court system, what happens is that, um, so let's say under this, these new bills that are coming out, somebody decides when they're talking into their classroom that they're not going to go through and memorize everybody's personal pronouns and one of the students takes issue with that and so they go and they make a complaint to the human rights tribunal so what happens at this point is that this professor will be will have to come in there for mediations or their free time that's no big deal but then they start going in front of the tribunal when they pick up the case and they have to start paying money for lawyers out of their own pocket and this expense goes up as you can imagine very quickly mm. and we've had it before where in two different cases one in bc and one in quebec now where stand-up comics were charged tens of thousands of dollars. Wasn't Russell Peters charged for something? Uh, I'm not sure about him in particular, but I know two different stand-up comics I'm aware of. And mm -hmm. it's like for a stand-up comic to be charged like $70,000 or something because someone in the front row was offended by a Jesus. joke. Yeah. And this is this is where it goes wrong, right? Now, now you can see how so for this comic to have that overturned, he'd have to get a, a lawyer, apply to the appeal system. They might not hear him. <laughs> Right. And how's yeah. he going to pay for that when he's got to pay $70,000? And most stand-up comics are flat broke. <sighs> and this is all over, like, offense, right? Offense. Now, to be fair, this, this is with Canadian money, so it's yeah. you know, <laughs> more like Monopoly <laughs> money than anything. <laughs> Damn it, I was going to ask what it was in Monopoly dollars. <laughs> so this is, these are the types of concerns is that when people brush it off, a lot of times they're not aware of Canadian law. There, there are repercussions that happen within the legal system that aren't actually proper court procedure. There, the tribunal is in lieu of going to court, but they carry the full authority of court. And they can also mandate that you go to classes to retrain yourself about your attitude, yeah. uh, that you have to make public apologies. <laughs> like, you lived in the Soviet Union, right? Is any of this making like any res resonance for you there about <laughs> professions? Well, <laughs> there it was more if they didn't like what you said, you just disappeared. But, right, yeah. but we're not there yet. <laughs> yeah. But it, it starts it starts with soft censorship. Yeah. You know, it always starts with, you know, oh, you should have self-censored yourself. You shouldn't have said this. And and comedians, uh, you know, I part of me, uh, you know, to 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 be fully honest, when I hear uh, you know, that this case about Canadian law, 
part of me wants to play the devil's advocate so bad just because that's who I am. Like I try to, if there's one position that's, you know, being held, I try to kind of find all the caveats and like, well, what about this case? And what about, you know, what if there's yeah, some justification good. here or there? That's but good. I just, I just don't know enough about Canadian law and I'm, I'll, I'll wind up making a fool out of myself and I'm, I'm cool. We with do it all the time, man. You know? Fool away. It's fine. Like, but I mean, I've said I, things on this show that are so factually inaccurate that I, I mean, whenever I receive an email about it, I, I just shake my head and go, well, at least I can admit that I'm wrong. And that's the only, that's the only thing that I feel comfortable with about myself that, 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 you know, I don't mind admitting when I'm wrong. And people need to be able to admit when they're wrong. And so many people don't. Oh, yeah. I, I can admit when I'm wrong. But if I, especially, you know, the format that I use, my videos are scripted. I have time mm -hmm. to, to fact check and, and look into it when I'm writing it. And it kills me if I get something wrong, even oh. if it's a typo. <laughs> So I, I had one video where I was talking about the Apollo missions to the moon, and I, I listed all of them, but at the end I accidentally typed Apollo 18, and I think it was like 17 was the last. If I, I could be saying it wrong right now, but someone within about five minutes pointed out the error, and I was just like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, I did it to. I couldn't take down the video and re-upload. I mean, it's already got, it's already been blasted out to my subscribers. So I have to, you know, pin a comment to the top of the, you know, YouTube description and everything. And well, once again, talking about Hitchens, this is one of the things that I personally find impressive about. When I, there's, so, we're so lucky now in the age of YouTube, we have hours and hours of him making appearances, just talking or doing debates. Even better, just the amount of stuff that he can pull out with such accuracy. <laughs> From you know thinkers from hundred over a period of hundreds of years, and he's just pulling them out and using maybe not a quote, but he'll at least be uh, summarizing very accurately what their arguments were. Uh, off at, at the off very least, the he cuff. paraphrases. <laughs> yeah, off the cuff, yeah. right? It's amazing. Like, the guy had a, a incredible mind. I, I've been trying to. I, I think uh, memory is something that you develop. I don't think that people are always inherently born with incredible or, or horrible memories. I think there's techniques and tactics you can use. There's yeah. a, an excellent book on this called Moonwalking with Einstein, which talks about various mnemonic tactics that you can use to memorize large amounts of information. But one of the, the key things that helps you to um, be able to take in more around you is to have more unique experiences. So if, if, if you look out your window right now and you see, you know, this red BMW convertible drive by and there's, you know, Brad Pitt and some chicks like topless and they're shooting guns in the air, you're never, <laughs> you are never going to forget that for the rest of your life. But if, if you see a white pickup truck drive by, you know, it's the CIA inside. So it's, <laughs> but it's, it's just a, a matter of, of finding something that's different, that's unique, that's a little bit sticky as far as like a memorably Sticky. Yeah, yeah. Like it, it's, you know, so you're building a, a web of memories and it's the more connections that there are, the more likely you're, you're going to be able to recall it. And that's one reason why I travel as much as I do and why I read. I read probably at least a, a book a week now and I just, you know, try to surround myself with new information so that uh, maybe 30 years from now I can actually get up and, and have debates in a, a Hitchin style. Maybe not as as well as he does, but well, better I'm sure than now. I'm sure that most most of the time people still they I'm sure he prepared stuff like his opening address and and potential stuff that he might talk about, but uh, you know you can tell from when he's just sitting there talking to people as well when he's not debating and he'll just like he'll be going into some like uh, disagreement between like three different philosophers that span a thousand years just chit chatting. <laughs> <laughs> Or he just off the cuff, he'll be sitting in, you know, Sean Hannity or something and just bam, like pulling stuff out just left and right out of nowhere. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, the memory thing for me, I think the the main thing is to try different different uh, approaches. I think for anything when you're trying to improve it. So for me, for instance, I find a lot of times when I'm trying to remember stuff, uh, I'm good with more advanced math when I start applying myself on a regular mm-hmm. basis anyway. But with simple math, that's where I always score the lowest because I just skim over it and I get it wrong. <laughs> Uh, so when I'm trying to remember, for instance, a license plate, I'm, uh, my profession is truck driver. So when I have different license plates, trucks and trailers, I have to write down the number for my pre-checks and all this kind of stuff. And I have found consistently that every time I think to myself, am I remembering that correctly? Any kind of doubt, all the numbers scramble <laughs> in my head. But as long as I'm, I'm like arrogant about it, I always get it right when I double check. Hmm. Interesting. So for me, a lot of times it's a confidence issue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, when it comes to numbers. <laughs> uh, no, that's all right. I was just thinking, like, you know, I just, uh, yeah, was it been over a year and a half since I graduated? And I had to use tons of tricks to try and remember all of the information they were trying to cram into me. So most of the time, if I could make it an image, yeah, it was easier for me. I tried to use vivid, vivid imagery to... Um, Remember, so what, one of the tests we had to go through uh, the anatomy of the human brain and the skull, and I, I'm probably going to butcher the name, but the form magnum is the largest hole in the skull that the brainstem comes out of. And yeah. I, I, for specifically to remember that one, said a 44 magnum will leave a large hole in your head. So four, form magnum, 44 magnum. <laughs> that's that's how I did that one. So. Yeah. You know, things it's like a dirty that. hairy memory approach. Right. Feel lucky. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is, is your brainstem feeling lucky? Well, is it? <laughs> it's like, well, I got a hundred on the test, and that's all that counts. <laughs> I actually uh, ended up uh, in 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 that class um, because I I did all of the bonus work. I ended up getting a hundred and ten percent total grade. But nice. I guess in college they don't do what they do in high school, which is give you those extra grades. So I just ended up getting a hundred in the mm-hmm. course. So that was cool. I also yeah. like the, hey, I also like in that video that we were just talking about where you kind of laid this out, um, the connection that you, you talk about when you can't question things and the cult kind of mentality. Um, a lot of people don't understand that that's a principle that can go throughout everything in your life, including your mm-hmm. personal life. You actually even talk about how it can occur in your personal life when you have someone you have a relationship with and you're not allowed to ask them questions. Uh, then how do you put it? You always have that question at the end. Um, if this person's so great, or if this, you know, this whatever is so great, then why would asking questions make them less great? Yeah, it's, it's like if, if, if the president's as great as he says he is, if the relationship's as wonderful as your significant other says it is, if, you know, a religion is, is perfect and God is wonderful, then a little scrutiny is not going to change that. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So questions, questions, questions. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know that, um, you know, for, 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 from our end of it, when we're debating or discussing, cause we don't debate very often on our, on our podcast, cause we have guests, we try to keep things low key. Um, I'd like to get more people who disagree with us on so that I could have fun getting into an argument. But I know recently, <laughs> I know recently we've been discussing a little bit about climate change and the science around that. And there are a couple of, uh, retorts that we've received, um, at least I have when I discuss it on Facebook that uh, people think that we're science denialers and it's the, the go-to, you know, insult that they have now. Me personally, I'm undecided because like you're ignorant about Canadian law, I'm ignorant about climate science. I'm not, it's not beyond me. It's just, I haven't put a ton of time or effort into learning a a lot about it, (laughs) but the level of 
hostility that one can receive by merely questioning that it is happening or happening at the rate that it's happening or, or even just the, the, the approach to solving these issues. Right. And, and so my, my question to you is, well, I just want your opinion on that. You know, what, what, what do you think about that? Because me, I tend to try and intentionally take the counter position sometimes just to see what their argument is in return. Like how strong is your argument? Yeah. Uh, obviously, I play the devil's advocate a lot more when I'm, you know, sitting around having drinks with friends than if I'm on <laughs> a channel and I know that it's going to be represented as my viewpoint. Mm-hmm. Because if you know, if, if I'm just trying to strengthen a position, yeah, I might, I might take the anti-vax position even if I don't believe it at all. <laughs> yeah. But I, I just want to see, you know, what are their arguments? Are you know, do they have strong positions? Could I? defend my position against myself you know do i know both sides of a position well enough to tear down the one that's factually inaccurate mm-hmm. right yeah but if if i'm on my channel i think that the you know the onus is on me for to accurately inform my audience so if i you know i've for a long time i've been wanting to do a video on vaccines but i just i a, a video like that i'm probably going to wind up reading at least like you know between 10 and 50 research papers, scientific research papers, and just really, really delving into the science behind it. And that's going to take me at least a month. Right. Then to, you know, to film and animate and and record and write the script and everything. But if, uh, you know, I I don't think that anyone's position should be silenced or shot down. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, in the, the free marketplace of ideas, if you're wrong, that that'll eventually come come out and people will see, you know, as long as the other side is also able to, to have this conversation. Right. Yeah. But I don't think that all positions have an equal level of merit. So if someone is touting, you know, Elvis is still alive and, you know, and I can <laughs> prove it because I, I feel him <laughs> talk to me in the morning and, and he, when I'm brushing my teeth in, in the mirror, he reaches over and squeezes my nipples, you know, <laughs> that type of person may get a slot on Alex Jones, but they're, they're not really someone that you take seriously because it doesn't match with anything that we know about reality. Hmm. As, as far as climate change goes, I think the reason that there's such a visceral reaction to people who deny that it's taking place is because when you really dive into this, when you start, you know, looking at at what is the science behind why they're saying this? Hmm. um, What are the effects? There's a documentary called chasing coral, where they, they do over the course of several months, they look at coral reefs and how they're disappearing. They look at um, most the bleaching, of the heat. right? No, it's, it's the there's heat that's being accumulated in the oceans. Mm-hmm. And it, I think it's like 90 percent of global warming is not um, it's not the, the surface temperatures. It's the, the ocean. <coughs> and, and that's that's leading to thermal expansion. And so Mm -hmm. you're seeing rising sea levels. You're seeing uh, islands that are going to be submerged before too long. Um, You're seeing uh, coral reefs that are dying off, uh, melting ice caps and stuff. And so it's, you know, there's this question of if we don't act now, is is there going to be a tipping point, a point of no return? Is this reversible? Um, How much can we reverse it through carbon sequestration methods? And when someone who isn't an expert in the field or, you know, who is maybe even – you know, and I'm, I'm not even going to say like if someone's hired by, you know, some oil company, you know, sometimes they do get paychecks, but that doesn't mean that their positions are completely invalid if they have the science to back it up, if they can show, you know, and it, it withstands, you know, critique from experts in the field in a reputable peer reviewed journal, then I don't care where their paycheck's coming from. Right. But if they have an agenda and this stuff isn't passing peer review in a legitimate scientific uh, research journal and 
the scientific community is literally out there. You know, these aren't people who are making big bucks. These are people who are going through all kinds of shit. You know, the, the documentary I talked about, Chasing Coral, they're literally every single day they're getting cut up, bruised up. They're, they're doing dive after dive after dive in the ocean. They're exhausted. They're overworked. They're overstressed. And they're not seeing, you know, huge financial rewards for it. They just care about the environment and the planet and coral reefs and, and just the preserving the, the beauty of, of natural um, uh, phenomena like that. And so for, for someone whose life work is in the sciences and they're really trying to preserve the planet and then to have someone who's not an expert in the field just come out and say, it's all bullshit, climate change is a lie, and it's you know mm. the government who's trying to you know, shut down uh, fossil, the fossil fuel industry and stuff, it, it does tend to get a, a little bit of a visceral reaction from the scientific community, and I understand why. Right. Um, for, for that me, was long-winded. I apologize. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's, that's fine. Um, just cause you're the guest on our show, we're asking you questions. <laughs> uh, uh, no, the reason I, the reason I brought it up is that at least for myself, I've always said, you know, live clean, clean up your garbage, you know, try and try and reduce your footprint. But I've also said in several instances, uh, recorded and unrecorded that I don't understand the science, uh, a hundred percent or even 10%. Uh, but I think people should live cleaner. Try and not toxify your environment. Don't litter. You know, if everyone played their part, then at least some of the effect would be reduced. But when it comes to your, your you made a statement earlier uh, that you said if if you can't explain something simply, you probably don't understand it well enough. And I think what happens in a lot of these instances, whether the social or scientific issues that get brought to the public to the public sphere, is that the people who steal the narrative, so the politicians who are talking about climate change, or the politicians or lawyers who are talking about social issues or gender pronouns or whatnot, these people steal the narrative, and then because they don't understand what it is that they're trying to explain, they, they muddy the waters. So... A politician doesn't understand the science nearly as well as the scientist himself who's doing the research in the field. And my worry is, is because these individuals try to profiteer off of this, uh, this science or this social issue and get themselves elected because people feel very passionately about things that they don't often understand fully, that they're, that, that, that they themselves are the ones fucking it up. And then, it, it allows that door to be opened up that, that, that confusion that they create opens the door for skept for skeptics. I'm, and I'm really don't want to pollute the name skeptics to come in <laughs> and, and then hack the argument that they're butchering apart because it's almost like the people who are trying to support the narrative or steal the narrative so that they can profit off of it, um, create a straw man that allows the conspiracy theorists to come in and chop it down. And then, and then the rest of the public is just so confused they become numb to it. Well, there's there's two points I want to make. First off, there's a a difference that most people don't realize between skepticism and scientific skepticism. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people self-identify as a skeptic, and they're skeptics about the moon landing. They're skeptics about you know aliens <laughs> and Bigfoot, and, and it, they're skeptics about everything. And it's all a big conspiracy. But they're not utilizing the scientific method in their skepticism. They're not yeah. you know really understanding why something is uh, reliable or why someone is reputable or not. And mm. so you know, the, first I want to make that distinction. You know, just because someone's a skeptic doesn't mean that they're utilizing scientific skepticism. Yeah. The second point to that is, you know, I said, if you can't explain something simply, you probably don't understand it well enough to be teaching it. Mm-hmm. Well, just because, you know, the, the flip side of that is just because you can explain something simply doesn't mean that you're right about it. It doesn't mean that you understand it uh, well enough because you could 
completely misunderstand it and still just paint it super simply and say, oh, it's it's a conspiracy by government, you know, paying these scientists for whatever. And it sounds like a really simple, easy to understand narrative, but it's not weighted in any actual facts. It's not really understanding the science behind climate change and the man-made effects on it. Well, if, if so, I could, if I could weigh in on this massive, uh, contentious discussion issue that I know nothing about on the scientific level either. Um, <laughs> my main concern is always about operation principles. Um, I'm somebody who, uh, for some reason I I'm very politically oriented. So my main concern is about tactics. Uh, there are certain tactics that are employed, not just with this subject, but uh, often with the subject by many people that set off my red flag. And it's not specific to the science. Uh, things like uh, shutting people down when they have questions um, and shaming people. So somebody goes, well, listen, uh, there are some scientists I've heard of that seem to have really good credentials and they're saying something different. And the response that I think is a big fail that I hear a lot is the scientific consensus is in. The discussion is over. It's like, well, then what's this person going to do with their doubts? That's gonna that's just gonna inflame their doubts. It's not gonna solve anything. But I hear this type of response a lot, and I hear it including uh, to the point of policymakers justifying why they're making their policies. So I think that let me sum it up this way: I am very concerned that I'm seeing a politicization like we've never seen before of science in general. Mm -hmm. So when they had the pro science marches, right? Uh, people who were conservative were not wanted, and it was very clear to them. Like I saw all kinds of discussions about this. If you were conservative and you didn't agree on all the different topics that were seen as settled already, mm -hmm. you were not, you were an undesirable. So the danger with this is that, well, a lot of people who are looking through the particulars of the science and having these meaningful conversations or educating themselves for the general public, what happens is people choose sides. Oh, well, this is my political side. So these are my political scientific positions. Yeah. And I, well, I, I don't know. I've, I don't know what to do about that, but I, I've certainly been concerned about it. That's that's a concern I, I don't think you're alone in. I've talked to a lot of people in the atheist community who all go to atheist conferences and someone will get up to have a talk and they'll just start bashing conservatives in general. And there are conservatives in the atheist community. There are people in the atheist community who don't align with the far left and maybe they're somewhere in the middle. Maybe they're libertarian. I, I believe uh, Penn Jillette is a libertarian. I think David Silverman is conservative, um, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, uh, I, I didn't know that. Um, but there's there's a big difference between um, conservatism and the Republican Party. Right. And, you know, there yeah. there's not everyone, you know, conservatism is different from religious fundamentalism. But a lot of times they the, the waters get muddied and, and people just assume that those are completely synonymous. So you could be a fiscal conservative and you could want to have, you know, a small government and whatnot. And still be a social liberal and still care about, you know, rights for gay people, or uh, you could be libertarian in terms of, you know, drug use and legalization of marijuana, you know, so, so there's just, there's so many overlaps, which is why I, I get frustrated when people just make it this black and white identity politics uh, type of divide rather than actually yeah. looking at issue by issue. You know what? I actually identify, you know, on certain issues better with the conservatives than I do with the, the liberals. And that's okay. But we, yeah. as long as we know why and we're able to logically and reasonably and rationally come to that position and be able to defend it, then I've got no issue with someone, you know, if, if, if the if the, the free marketplace of ideas truly is free, then scrutinize away. And if, if you end up more conservative than liberal, then just that's fine. Just keep questioning your position, whichever side you're on. Yeah. Well said, sir. 
<laughs> You're obviously uh, not politically correct, and therefore it must be condemned. <laughs> shut it down. Shut it down. <laughs> Grief. I'm sure there's there's some camp somewhere for me. Yeah, but that's why so, I, that's that's why FEMA I, camps. <laughs> <laughs> what would Alex Jones have to say? They're coming to get us. They're coming. To, they're coming to get you. <laughs> Look at all them so, mass so, graves. Mass graves everywhere. <laughs> so if, if all of this is true, why didn't they shut him down back before he had millions of people watching yeah. his stuff? Well, that might be interesting for you to hear. Uh, years ago, when I was a truck driver, before I, so my transition was I was I was raised um, born again Christian, right? So very conservative fundamentalist. And as the years went by, especially when I went to university, I switched over to the opposite side, like we talk about, going from one end to the other. And I was a liberal. I wasn't an atheist. I was a, what I call a hippie spiritualist. You know, tree hunter. Kind of. Yeah, yeah, you know. Everything feels, feels, feels. And uh, so then I got out of university. I got back to the real world. And then I started becoming what I call a more practical person. So eventually it led to skepticism and atheism. Uh, but there was a few years where I was transitioning through that. So anyways, while I was a truck driver at first, I was in that spiritual kind of open to anything stage, right? <laughs> and I listened because I was so bored in that truck. I used to listen to um, Coast to Coast AM. Are you familiar with Coast to Coast AM? Mm, not really. Okay, well, Coast to Coast AM, I think they're still making it. Uh, George Norrie was the host when I was listening to it, but it goes back to the 90s. Essentially, as the X-Files took off in that era when anyone was like people were really open to the idea of government conspiracies and, and UFOs and stuff, mm. this was an AM syndicated show. It goes across the whole world at, in the middle of the night, like mid midnight hours. Like I think it starts at like 11 p.m. and it goes to like 4 a.m. or something. Every night, like seven days a week. And they talk about the craziest shit. They'll bring people out that are like, always vibrations. Your vibrations. As you raise your vibrations, you know, Mm -hmm. you will come closer to understanding the universe. (laughs) And then they have commercials for, you know, oh, well, don't forget to buy this food and put it in your garage for when the world ends. You'll have two weeks of food. And so all the crazies that are up in the middle of the night and can't sleep are like, well, maybe I should buy the, the food for two weeks. Like, really? <laughs> Jim, that's like Jim Baker's apocalypse buckets. That <laughs> Yeah, or buy gold is another one. Buy gold, <laughs> buy gold. Oh, if the, the economy's going to be destroyed tomorrow, I better buy the gold. <laughs> I'm going to have the gold. <laughs> I, I loved it at the time because I was bored, and so I'd be listening to these people talk about all this crazy stuff. But over time, what happened was, as I started becoming experienced in real life with some real mental Ill- illness issues with people I knew, I started realizing that this was predatory. Like they were preying mm. on people that were up in the middle of the night who had issues and they were trying to make money off of that. Yeah. Um, but anyway, Alex Jones, the first time I heard him was as a, as a, a couple of times as a guest <laughs> appearance on that show. He was doing some type of thing where he had gone to the Build-A-Burgers group. And he was reporting on the the security here. They're trying to drag us away or whatever, you know. (laughs) And George Norrie, even though he he hosts this quacky stuff, at least he's very calm and he's just kind of genteel about it. It was so funny listening to him. Like, oh, really? Oh, is it really that bad? Oh, yeah, that bad. (laughs) (laughs) And that's because any any kind of government meeting would, you know, they would never have a secret service to, you know, uh, weed out nut jobs. And it's not like rich people ever have meetings together because they have common interests and stuff like that. Like people in their own neighborhoods have meetings often for their neighborhood. <laughs> well, and I think it's it's the difference between a conspiracy and a grand conspiracy. Yeah. Where 
you know, conspiracies happen all the time. You know, I can conspire to do something. I can be like, well, I'm going to do this and, you know, make this happen. And, you know, we see things like the the Bay of Pigs with the CIA or MKUltra or stuff like that 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 are documented and and happened and, and they're well known all throughout, you know, media. And but when people say that there's a grand conspiracy, there's the reptilian overlords pulling all the strings. <laughs> there's, you know, aliens living among us and, and Hillary is secretly a man or something like that. <laughs> well, that was Michelle, but... Oh, yeah, it was Michelle that some people, were, <laughs> some people were really saying that. It's Michelle, she's a man. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's both of them. Oh, yeah, you know? was both Because okay, yeah. a, woman, a woman could never rise to power, you know. <laughs> Wait, are you, are you trying to tell us, um, seriously... Mr. Evolution, that the Anunnaki overlords are not real. <laughs> Is that what you're saying right now? He's he's um, misle- you're misleading people because you said they're aliens, but really they're from another dimension. <laughs> oh snap! I, 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 I'm, I'm thinking that we have a this. we have we have a firm Anunnaki denialer. I'm out. <laughs> coast to coast AM, they'd have people well, talking I'm about <laughs> they talk about that the Earth has like a hole. Where there's a whole civilization in the hole inside the Earth. Yes, Oscar. Have you heard Earth. this 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 crazy grand conspiracy? Is it the Your Mama conspiracy? <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it makes flat Earthers seem sane. Actually, it's just like the, the, if you go up north, they don't want you to go. They protect the area. They won't let you fly up there because there's a huge hole in the North Pole, and you can fly in there. And that's where our overlords are. <laughs> oh, I see. So. You know, I'm sure that there's some overlap between flat earthers and and you know Probably. hollow earth. flat earthers and hollow. Yeah, yeah. They find it's, their... it's a portal down to the turtle. Yeah, <laughs> they they kind of blend their theories together over time, right? <laughs> Anyways, perverse uh, version of evolution. I got to cut in here. It was a pleasure meeting you. It was a pleasure talking to you. I hate having to leave early uh, during an interesting and funny conversation, but unfortunately, I have the birthday party dad thing to do. Thanks for bringing me coffee. You're welcome. <laughs> Have a good well, one. Thank you. It was nice meeting you. Yeah, you too. Take care. You can cut the part out where my ass walks past the screen. Oh, that's the part we're going to highlight. It's going to play over and over again. <laughs> Loop. <laughs> I see you later. Man. Have a good one. Thanks for bringing me coffee. You're welcome. Yeah, I uh, I think that video you sent me was a good summary. It gave me a uh, uh, like your videos are great, but that one gave me a good idea about where you're coming from. Oh yeah, I didn't expect for that video. I, I don't expect for that video to go viral, but it's I it's a good channel trailer. So when some somebody just stumbles across my channel, then they can kind of see what I'm about on the front page. Yeah, and I and I like your approach. Like for me, uh, you know, um, oh, uh, Robert M. Price. I don't know why his ma- name was popular in my head. You know who Robert M. Price is? Yeah, uh, he was on the show. I don't know, this is a few years ago. He was one of our early guests, and we had a discussion that. Actually, it's got like 4,000 views. It's just, I just threw our audio up on YouTube. It's, it's just a picture of him. Mm-hmm. And 4,000 people have tuned in. And I, I think that the reason, even though the audio is really bad, is because we talked to him a little bit about his views on life as opposed mm-hmm. to just biblical issues, right? Again, yeah. I, I'm fascinated by people's operating principles. Um, and so, for instance, we're talking about debating people. Uh, one of the things that he seemed to agree with quite strongly is that if you know your own principles and your own position seems strong to you, it's less likely that you need to go out and try and silence someone else or even just scream at them <laughs> yeah. Uh, because you have some confidence in your position. So even if someone else doesn't share it, it's not going to be des- destroying you. You know? Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with that. And that's why, you know, I, I didn't really speak up on the whole Canada law issue. Cause I, I just, I don't know enough about it. 
um, something like climate change, I'm a little bit more vocal on, but even still until if, if I make a video on a topic, I try to read both sides just as thoroughly as I possibly. And then once I've made a video on a topic, I'm like, okay, I can kind of talk about this a little bit because I've, I've really, really, really spent a lot of time researching. You don't become an expert in astrophysics overnight, but you know, even, you know, a month of intense study, you're not going to become, you know, like someone who spent, you know, six years, 10 years of their life, uh, getting a, a master's or a doctorate or whatever, or PhD in, in, a, in any field, you're just not going to have that level of mastery. And I think that's why a lot of times people do just, you know, refer to the, the scientific consensus, because we don't have enough time in our lives to become an expert in every single field that we discuss. Right. But I do think that you can get a pretty well-rounded idea of um, the, you know, at least how something works at a basic level, a surface level in a wide variety of fields. If you just, you know, dedicate a month to just really, really, really studying something and going as in-depth as you possibly can, looking at all different sides of it and trying to grasp it. And a lot of these fields overlap. So, you know, I, I spent the last five years studying, you know, biology, abiogenesis, evolution, evolutionary psychology, genetics, and these fields kind of, they overlap with each other. So I may not have a, an expertise in a particular field, but I know enough about each one to know that evolution happened. It's a right. fact. And, yeah. and it backs up and is supported by every single one of these fields of science. Well, I have, uh, I've been told that I have what's called a highly associative mind and an unusually one. But so for me, I often absorb new information slower. Like uh, I have a slower reading speed. I, I was always, I always felt dumb when I was in high school because I would, I would read slower than other people, mm -hmm. but they would go through a, say, you know, we were assigned a book in English class. Uh, some people I knew would read through it twice or even three times and I would beat them in the test. Mm. Um, because when I do read through it, I'm, I'm absorbing it and I'm readjusting, I guess, a lot of the information I had already had before. So yep. uh, every, every, what I'm trying to say is every brain's a little different. But one of the things we have in common here is that if you keep looking into new subjects and even the same subject over and over again and then putting it away and coming back to it, over time, you have an accumulative increase in understanding. An increase in understanding of this subject may give you surprising insight into something you're reading on this subject over here. So, yeah, it, it's amazing how much fields overlap. And, you know, and that's that's another thing, though, someone who gets a, a Ph.D. in a field, they're going to be hyper, hyper focused on one specific aspect. Yeah. You know, so so they may have, you know, a, a Ph.D. in astrophysics, but their, you know, their doctoral dissertation, you know, and their the, the last you know year or two of their work and you know, all their, their specialty and stuff might only be on, you know, a particular tiny little subset of, you know, oh, I, I studied and I, I specialized in eclipsing binary star systems or something, you know, and it's it's just one little narrow area. That doesn't mean that they don't know anything about the rest of physics. A lot of times your undergraduate degree is a little bit broader and then you, you focus in. But you can kind of get a broad understanding without spending 10 years of your life in an area. And yeah. when you start, when you take a, a broad level picture, the, the way that I have where you're studying all of these different topics at once, you do see a lot of overlap and you do see, you know, a lot of things that, that back up a specific position like evolution. Yeah. So if you're studying uh, biological evolution and you do that for quite a while and then you set that aside and you do a couple of other things and you come around to talking about environmental uh, issues, global warming or climate change, some of the elements that you just went through about the science on evolution may pop up in your study on climate change. And there might be some relevance in giving you a grasp or, you know, a trajectory and understanding that. 
And I, I think that works in many different subjects, actually. Well, in, in business, too, a lot of times inventors aren't necessarily coming up with a whole new idea, but they're synthesizing two ideas that they've been exposed to that have never been combined. Yeah. So they may have a, a expertise in physics, and then they learn something about you know biomechanics, and they're like, oh, hey, I could take these two ideas and put them together, and I have some new you know yeah. medical equipment or something. Innovating. Innovating yes. rather than inventing, necessarily, yeah. I, so, I think most inventions come about that way. But even ideas, new ideas, new ways of looking at things in the the you know, different yeah. fields of science oftentimes are, are overlapping fields, overlapping ideas that, you know, lead to new innovations. There, uh, there was also, okay. So I can't remember the guy's name. This was many years ago. I saw this. I was like, I think maybe a teenager. I was very young, but I was watching the show and it was about, um, it was an artist who wanted to do something with ceramics and, you know, just clear ceramics and everything that was existing at the time always had bubbles once you got to a certain size. So he studied up on all the science. He, he talked to a few of the people that were kind of leading in that area. And he developed his own technique to do his art so there would be no bubbles. It would be just pure mm. material. And the scientists then took that and were able to apply it to all kinds of stuff they wanted to use it for, including when, when they go down the ocean and you see them in that round like bubble. Yeah. That was because of his invention. They were able to put the huh. ceramics in, into that shape. And it's incredibly strong without the bubbles in it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so no, it's, it's just an example of like, even if you aren't a scientist, doesn't mean that it's not worth looking into the science and trying to understand it. You never know what you're going to get. And that's why scientific research is so important because, you know, there's applications of, you know, we think, oh, we're just racing, you know, Russia to the moon or we're, you know, we're just trying to build a space weapon. And yeah. and yet all of these, um, you know, ex explorative um, measures that have been taken by NASA it's led to, you know, cell phones and GPS systems and the internet and like, like all of this, you know, uh, these technological breakthroughs that have spurred our economy as a whole and generated more tax dollars. You know, all of this has come about just through, you know, one area of scientific um, research and development that they didn't necessarily know where it was going to end up. Yeah. But just by investing in science, by valuing science, that's where we get. Have you ever wondered why early apologists were so firm against curiosity and free thought and exploration? Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, Plutarch, all of them vilified curiosity. They saw it as a vice. And yet, if we still thought that the Earth was the center of the universe or that the Earth was flat, we would never have made it to Mars. It's curiosity and free thought and exploration that's allowed us to put man on the moon, that's allowed us to, to send satellites up into space, that's allowed us to circumnavigate the globe. If the Bible is true, if the Quran is true, would it really make any difference if we tried to search for ways to examine the facts and the evidence? Truth withstands scrutiny. And if you scrutinize it and it falls apart, then it's not worth believing in. In fact, whenever the, the the U.S. government invests in research and development, there's always a positive. There's always a net positive re return on investment, which is it blows my mind whenever they make cuts to to any kind of um, research or any kind of you know scientific uh, well, advancement. And that ties back to my concerns about politicization of science. People t taking political sides on scientific issues is so just I think so the potential there for uh, destructive counterproductivity is mm. enormous. Uh, you know, okay. So for instance, I'll hear some people on the more conservative side. These days I talk a lot about the left, but we'll, we'll go with the conservative side here. A lot of times nowadays I hear the more conservative people 
talking about how going to the moon was, a, was essentially a waste. Now, we got a few things out of it, but it was essentially a waste. Well, this perspective is very narrow. <laughs> you know, mm. all you really, if you're going to take, take a position like that, you have to go through and look at all the innovation that occurred directly from the programs mm-hmm. and then how that affected industry and personal lives in society. Uh, that's, that's a lot to look at. There was a lot of, of waves that came out of that program. Yeah. So, and not, not just the offshoots, not just the, the technological offshoots from each one of those discoveries. You know, whenever you have one invention, there might be 50 others that are, you know, right. taking that invention and running with it. Yeah. But in addition to that, you look at the, the psychological boost that, that that did where, you know, soon, shortly after uh, man landed on the moon, you know, there's just this increased interest in learning and science and research. And, you know, you had the, the rise of the maker movement where you have – you know, thousands of people around the world that are, you know, subscribing to magazines focused on engineering and technical, you know, uh, yeah, just absolutely. Hack, hacking and tweaking and, and creating, you know, things and tools and innovating. And, you know, that that's where, you know, the, the maker movement was the rise of of the computer as we know it, the, the home computer with Bill Gates and with Steve Jobs and Wozniak and others. Yeah. It, it started with this level of curiosity that really exploded after, you know, man's mission to, to the moon and into space. And, you know, well, I think that's I find one of the, the more you look into history, you know, for me anyways, the more I realize how often, particularly in contemporary history, you know, but within living memory of like our oldest people still alive, how often we take something out of a historical context and we just mm-hmm. slam it down and talk about it on its own as if it's happening right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that era, when they went to the moon, it was an era when, for instance, in the United States world, like important leaders were being shot. <laughs> you know, it was, there's a lot of negative shit going on at that time. And this was a particularly unifying positive uh, element. Uh, even for the world to see it, I think uh, we, we take for granted now how we see the, the world, but I think it shifted when we could see people standing on another body and taking pictures of our planet down below. Yeah. There's a book by uh, Steven Pinker called better angels of our nature. And it looks at crime and violence and war throughout history and comes to the conclusion that we're living in the most peaceful time in human history. Yeah. And I think a large part of that is the connectivity of the Internet, of um, just mass transportation networks and global trade and free trade between countries. Um, You know, right now, you know, even just not having tariffs between, you know, different um, countries that are that are allies and, and the European Union. And, you know, people will look at that and be like, oh, it's a new world order and it's all, you know, trying to combine it under yeah. one global government. And honestly, I look at that and I see we're more connected than ever before. We're not uh, as tribalistic as we used to be. There isn't nearly as much nationalism as there was 100 years ago. We see ourselves as the human race. We explore space and we look back on planet earth as planet earth not as oh that's that country that's this country this is you know it's not so much an individual cluster of pockets of people groups and it's more overlapping you know it's it's humanity as a whole and there's there's a definitely a positive unifying factor to that i i I think that um whether people are on the side of you know we're all going to live in star trek very soon or they're on the side of you know the, you know, the current day nationalists, as we're talking about, people who are super nationalistic, I think that even the super nationalistic people have become a little bit less than they would have been. <laughs> and they just don't realize it because, again, I don't think that maybe they appreciate the fact that, 
I'll put it this way. My, uh, my brother and I have had a lot of discussions about various elements about religion because I used to be religious and he's still, a, he's a minister. Mm-hmm. And so one of the discussions I remember we had years ago was I said to him, do you think when we're talking about way back, you know, a thousand years ago, do you think the Christians of that time in an average European nation would have thought you were a Christian like that? And he was like, I think essentially, yeah. I'm like, so you think Christianity essentially hasn't changed? He's like, not really. I'm like, okay, so you realize that most of these people had no idea what nation they were in, right? They had no idea it was outside. Like, they had no map, really. They didn't even know where they were. Mm-hmm. They didn't know anything about China. They didn't know we were on a sphere, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. They, they, they didn't know any of this stuff. And most of them didn't know how to read. They didn't have access to all this information. So how could they possibly be the same kind of Christian as you? They didn't understand anything about life the same way. Yeah. And that's what I mean about historical context. You know, we, we talk about uh, nationalism. There are people now who are insanely nationalistic and they're very close-minded, but even they don't realize that they have been affected and are different than someone a hundred years ago who was super nationalistic. But even, even nationalism now it's, it's such bullshit. And I understand that people want to preserve their own, you know, cultural traditions, their own, you know, ethnic foods and garments and songs and culture and everything. And I, I totally get that. Um, but what people don't understand is that, ideas aren't stopped by borders. You know, everyone, you know, there's about a billion people right now who are on the cusp of coming online, gaining access to the internet, Amazon, Facebook, uh, Google. They, there's a number, I think like five or six companies that are all working on an initiative to create kind of a global uh, free internet that anyone can connect to anywhere in the world. And as people are coming online, something, you know, this podcast that I'm on is going to be able to be watched by someone in Saudi Arabia or someone in Nigeria or India. Ideas aren't stopped by borders. Currency used to be very, you know, this was our national currency. Now you have the rise of cryptocurrencies, not just yeah. Bitcoin. There's there's dozens of, of cryptocurrencies that transcend any kind of border. Um, languages now are where, you know, it used to be, this is my national language. But you're seeing translation software that's getting better and better and better and better to where, you know, I'm able to sit in a taxi in Thailand and bring up Google Translate, and I talk into it in English, and it talks to him in Thai, and then it, he talks in Thai, and it talks to me in English, and it's not always perfect, but it's getting <laughs> – it's it's exponentially improving. Yeah. And we're, we're reaching a point where pretty soon – you know, there, there's even um, little earpieces that you can put in. I think Skype has a, a translation software now where you can put an earpiece in, and you're talking, and someone hears you in their native tongue almost in real time. So so we're seeing this, this crumbling of, you know – um, ideas are no longer stopped by borders. Uh, languages are no longer any kind of a dividing factor. So we're able to to share, you know, and find this kind of commonality. Um, race is is we're we're not seeing race in terms of you know oh they're so genetically different. It's just melanin content. Science is giving us a better understanding of the human race. Um, trade networks, you know, have have really cut down on you know borders. You have countries that have open borders and borders in general we have such mass transit where you can hop on a plane and end up somewhere later that day on the other side of the world so i I think i'm hopeful in terms of you know seeing this this planet become more united in the future not less so even with current political trends in certain places i i don't think that i think unification is is inevitable are you a star trek fan uh i never got super huge into it oh well, that seems like a missed opportunity with that view. <laughs> I know. I, I'm definitely a, a futurist and an optimist. Well, that's yeah, that's fine. Uh, my my perspectives have shifted many times over the years on these issues. 
when it comes to the globe, uh, for, for us, I think it's still very complex. There are a lot of things that, uh, worry me and there's a lot of hopes that I still have. Um, I think that it used to be when I was younger, this is probably pretty common. When I was younger, things seemed a lot more simple on these issues because I was younger, right? So I knew a lot more, <laughs> but, uh, when it comes to, to the goals you're talking about, I think that they are, they're things that can be achieved. Now, how many missteps we're going to take along the way, I, I, that I can't say. I have a lot of misgivings about the fact that larger bodies are almost never democratic. I don't understand why that has to be. Like, why don't we elect people to the UN when they're going to represent us? Why don't we, uh, why doesn't Europeans, why don't they demand the ability to elect people to the EU? <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, that, I, that I don't understand. So there's some bureaucratic concerns I have. And uh, though I agree with everything you've said about ideas and uh, shifting the way that we live as a global community, I do have concerns, though, that violence does go across borders, and they are violence is also much much different from from one region to another. So, yeah, I mean, obviously, this is connected to my concerns about violent Islamists and how we're you know having all kinds of issues dealing with that. But overall, um, hopefully, they have transformations that accelerate in their uh, parts of the world because that would deal with a lot of that problem. I think that they are living on borrowed time. And I say that in, I I should clarify, um, Saudi Arabia has been extremely prosperous because they have oil reserves. Yeah. But those are drying up. And so for the first time, you're seeing women who are, you know, suddenly, oh, hey, like, let's give them the right to vote. Now, I think in May, there is a, um, the, as King, King Saud released some type of, I don't know how their, their government system works, but basically he he allowed women in in certain cases to where they don't need a male guardian anymore. Yeah, if they're I heard about that. Yeah. Education or if they're um, I think a medical care, and this this trend is slowly, you know, if if they want to become competitive, they have to have a more educated population, and they can start by educating their women. Yeah. And the empowerment of women, education of women, giving them the right, you know, to control their birth cycle. Uh, that leads to, to dropping total fertility rates. It leads to an educated population as a whole. It leads to a higher investment in the children that they do have yeah. and, you know, less violence. There, there's just – there are so many trends that I, I think it's it's so easy right now to look at the negative and the media paints the world with such a negativity bias because panic sells. sells. Yeah. People get scared and so they'll click on an article. But if you really start tuning into the the scientific advancements and the achievements and the accomplishments that are going on, um, the, the fact that right now this this smartphone that I have is more powerful than the greatest supercomputer that existed that put man on the moon in the sixties. You know, yeah, the, it was probably greater than anything that existed in the eighties, maybe even in, the nineties. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And you know, so so when you think about that, you know, some some Maasai warrior in Africa is able to pull up Google and have access to all of the world's collective information in his pocket. You know, I, I think we're going to see, and, and right now atheism is the fastest growing religious affiliation or lack of affiliation, if you will, yeah. uh, in the world. Creed, and, uh, as, as our one uh, judge up here put it in a case, it's a, a creed. They're all creeds and, and that way they all. It's like a creed without a creed. Yeah. <laughs> but the internet is where religions go to die and religions tend to divide. I think uh, the internet is where people across the world come and be united around certain ambitions and goals and, and ideas. 
And I think that's much more powerful than than nations and borders. So I, I'm huh. hopeful for the future. I don't think I'm super delusional just because of how much I, I travel and, and study this stuff. Um, but you know, I this is well, this we'll, is a, we'll have to wait and see. This is why it's so important that wherever we have uh, societies that talk about freedoms and uh, anything that goes in, into the realm of liberties that we continue to put pressure on these companies and particularly the government not to get involved in censoring things and manhandling people's uh, lives online is because they're getting really good at it. And they're handing these countries like Saudi Arabia, uh, different countries that want to control what the internet will allow these people to find. They're getting better and better at being able to control that. Like China, I guess is, is getting superb at this. Um, and the last thing we want is for that to backwash into our countries <laughs> where the internet right now, we call it the World Wide Web. We think of it as surfing for free. But there are people on this world with power who would like that to be controlled. And that is a goal of theirs. That's true. But simultaneously, um, countries like Iran, one of the number one search for terms in any kind of search engine is VPN, proxy, and Tor. Yeah. <laughs> and it's... The rebellion. <laughs> I, I, I worked I worked in, in network security for a couple of years and the, the fact is, you know, the, the math behind encryption, you know, if, if you have, you know, a, a high enough, you know, like, let's say you have a, a 512 bit encryption right now, it's it's literally not something that is is breakable. Imp the implementation of it can be hacked and sometimes they'll they'll try to get to your data before it gets encrypted or right after it, it's decrypted. But the math itself is sound and it has been for decades and so, you know, you're, you're seeing things, you know, like computer systems that are encrypted with TrueCrypt that, you know, are held by, you know, uh, mafia drug lords and the FBI gets their hands on it. They try to hack it for six months before they give up, you know, and this is something, you know, that's why they want backdoors. That's why they, you know, they wanted Apple to give them a backdoor when they, they confiscated uh, there's whose phone was it a couple months ago. There's some crime investigation and and Apple was like, oh, sorry, if we put in this backdoor for you, we're putting in a backdoor for all of the, yeah, the Russian absolutely. hackers yeah. and criminals. The, the fact is, though, that the math works and we're, we're seeing while it's true that especially legacy software gets so complicated that it's really, really hard to have perfect, secure code. And it's usually that the longer it's been around, the more it's been banged on, the more it's been patched, the more secure any kind of program or operating system becomes. But the, the math works. And so countries that, that really want to find a way around uh, government um, spying, they really want to find a way to access this type of content that use you know a, a reliable VPN, there can are you, ways to do it. And you, the government really can't – they can't really stop it. Can you give me just one second? Sure. One sec. Sorry. No, buddy. I have a few more minutes. Okay? Well, I need Minecraft. Oh, I'm sorry. I am talking a few minutes. Okay. Okay. Are you almost done? Yeah, almost done. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's my nephew. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll let you go so we can play Minecraft. <laughs> <laughs> they love the Minecraft. Um, parting, th parting thought, maybe, though, um, is uh, one of the things about... Uh, this is going to be strange. I'm bringing his name up. But Napoleon Bonaparte that a lot of people don't realize... Uh, he had some areas of agreement with today's uh, concepts from the Enlightenment. There's some areas he was in strong agreement about. And one of them was, I remember reading this because when I first started learning about him in my studies, uh, he'd always been billed as an early Hitler. And there was a lot of horrible things that went on with this guy. <laughs> 
But he had some things that were very different. For instance, he put in the first free education for the general public anywhere in Europe. As far as I believe that was the first in anywhere in Europe. So I think America was already working on that. Uh, but his his philosophy um, was that they needed to overthrow nobility and get rid of it. Even though, strangely enough, at the end he was putting in his own nobility. But uh, I think he was crazy by then. Anyways, but the the philosophy he had from the beginning of the wars that he was waging was that you never know where talent's going to come from. It can come from anyone in the population. And so to give people the opportunity to raise up through equal basic opportunity and then hard work and talent would benefit any effort, nation, army, anything. And that was a really kind of a clear thing that I've always kind of remembered. And when I look up at the Muslim world, and there are some nations that are more, uh, there's a lot of variation, but largely all the talent that's being suppressed that could benefit us, um, specifically the idea that, you know, we could have had um, contribution to space exploration that, that we were just talking about that we've never had because in these areas, that talent has been suppressed. Mm. It's that is a huge loss. And I'm hoping that reform occurs quicker uh, than it did for Christianity. <laughs> I'm hopeful. I, I think that there is a there, there's a, a tipping point. There's a threshold that has to be reached. And right now, it's when I I, I forget where I was reading this, but it was something like five percent of Saudi Arabia identify as atheists when polled anonymously. Oh wow! And and around <laughs> around twenty percent are non-religious, and that's that's insane coming from a country that claims that ninety nine percent of their population is you know Sunni Muslim, mostly Wahhabi. You know, so I think that there's a tipping point where people don't necessarily realize what's going on below the surface, but yeah. there's a lot of discontentment and the civilians, the population is, is getting fed up and they're frustrated and, you know, the repression and the, the suppression of the voices of women yes. in these countries. And that's 50% of the population right there. So all it takes is is one, one catalyst, one idea, one, you know, and I don't know where that's going to come from. Normally there's some top down change that allows people to speak up. It allows people to, you know, uh, just recently, you know, now women don't always need a guardian. I think that that's, if that slowly relaxes and relaxes and relaxes even more, suddenly yeah. you'll see women taking to the street and protesting and signs and you'll, you'll see this, this tipping point. Now, um, as a whole though, you're talking about the, the concept that Napoleon had of, you don't know where talent is going to come from. And that's really, in recent times, there's been a massive shift away from a fixed mindset to a growth mindset where people once thought of I was born smart or I was born dumb. And <laughs> in actuality, it's it's how you spend your time. That's the, the main determining factor of if you're going to be a smart person or a dumb person. Do you sit at home watching Jersey Shore all day and picking at your toenails? Or are you listening to podcasts, reading books, uh, attending lectures, taking courses online? Because at the end of the day, you're building a network of ideas. You're building a network yeah. of information that you can draw on. And the more you know, the easier it is to learn new things. Yeah. Well, fair enough. I don't I don't think he ever distinguished on those points just because for him it was all end result he was looking at. So his, mm -hmm. his best officers uh, were almost never from nobility because nobility kind of had uh, – they believed they had a right to inherit powers and privilege. Whereas the people that didn't, that worked their asses off to get there, like you, that's what you're talking about. They would have been yeah. studying their ass off. They would have been doing it because they, they didn't expect it to be handed to them. So when they got to him, they were ready to go. You know, like, I'll, I'll do yeah. it. Whereas the movie's like, how dare you, Korskin monster? Yeah. <laughs> 
there's a book by Angela Duckworth called Grit, and it talks about the the number one factor of success is how much grit someone has as a, a oh, kid, yeah. and and how they're you know, and, and I'm sure you've heard of the marshmallow test. Yes. Where they, they put a marshmallow in a room with a bunch of kids and, you know, if the kid can wait for like five or ten minutes and not touch the marshmallow, then they get two. And the kids <laughs> yeah. who are able to resist it, you know, they'll like just stare off away from it and hum th- some song in their head and just try really, really hard. And those kids are the ones that, that 20 they years sell. down the road wind up really excelling and, and succeeding in life and, because and they have that. Their personal life. To, yeah, including yeah. reports of their happiness in their personal life and, and relationships. Yeah, I have sadly I've tried that experiment informally with a couple of children that I, in my family, including my own daughter, and it does not go well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I wouldn't recommend uh, that. That sounds so bad experimenting on kids, but <laughs> well, I figured, in, a, in a humane way, you know, it'll be like, well, listen, you know, I'll let you have a right now, or if you wait, or you do this first. Then I'll give you A plus B in a little while, and it's always I want A. <laughs> well, very strong human nature. So, so much of it too is how you frame something. Yeah, you know, uh, you know, in in parenting, telling a kid, you know, giving them a choice like, would you like to clean your room right now, or would you like to do the dishes? You know, rather than you know, you have to clean your room or you have to do the dishes, giving them a choice. Yeah. Or or saying, you know, giving them a heads up, we're going to leave in five minutes. You know, there, there's kind of like yeah. little priming tactics that you can use. And it's it's really interesting when you start to view any kind of conversation, social interaction, dating, coming out as an atheist. If if you start to think in terms of, you know, behavioral economics and psych, social psychology and um, every single situation to some extent is social engineering. You know, when when you meet someone for the first time, do you have a scowl on your face? Are you smiling? Are you approachable? You know, that Are is you your staggering with a bottle of liquor in your hand. <laughs> <laughs> but that that is that is a subconscious um, kind of subliminal way that, that you're coming off. You're you're giving some type of signal of am I approachable or not? Am I yeah. available to chat or not? Every conversation is social engineering, and the sooner people realize that, then the sooner you're able to say, you know what. I, I have some control over this. I have some influence on how this person reacts and how they treat me. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree. <laughs> that was a, a, a tangent. I, I'm really good at going off on those, but <laughs> I should let you go though. I've had you for like, like two hours. Uh, and I, again, I'll just quickly apologize for all the technical issues. Normally we, we don't have microphones falling over and I don't know why the one microphone was so quiet today, but you were very patient. <laughs> oh, you're fine. I, I enjoyed it. I had a good time. All right. And uh, so just for the end of the show, uh, before we wrap up, do you want to just tell people where they can find you and your work? Sure. So um, YouTube.com slash Holy Kool-Aid. Holy Kool-Aid is the name of the channel. That's where most of, where all of my videos are. I also aggregate all my content and I have transcripts and other resources, you know, how to find atheist communities near you. Um, different upcoming conferences and events I'm attending is on my, my website slash blog, HolyKool-Aid.com. And that's as in don't don't drink the Kool Aid. And Kool Aid for for people who don't know is spelled with a K. Yeah, and I don't have <laughs> I don't have any dash or hyphen or whatever. It's all one word. All one word. Thanks. And and, uh, and then I I have like Facebook and Twitter's slash Holy Kool Aid at Holy Kool Aid, and you can find it all on my website. All right. Well, just uh, when we're done, send me the information on the on a message, and I'll make sure that anything you include I put there for people right, to find awesome. the show notes. Cool. Thank you very much for uh, for uh, being on the show, and also uh, thank you for your work. I like it. Thank you. Yeah. One one last thing. It's it's not. It's still in the works, but I've I've been writing a book. It it's initially was going to be um, 
how to come out of the atheist closet, but I realized that I could fit that into one or two chapters. <laughs> and given given the my travels and experiences, I'm the the title is tentative, but I'm thinking of going with how to unfuck the world. <laughs> and I'm, I'm going to cover a lot of the things we've been talking about on this podcast, things like uh, climate change, education reform, um, you know, uh, religion, and and all kinds of stuff. I'll take maybe ten or twenty different global issues and break them down. Yeah, it sounds good. Uh, from just from like your material I'm listening to, uh, it sounds like it'd be an interesting book. Having so. titles, having titles. I I have not written a book, but uh, at one point I was thinking about sitting down and writing stuff out. This is like a year ago, and the title that came to me instantly was um, "Why We're All So Stupid." <laughs> 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 it was going to be just like a layman's kind of approach to being skeptical about things okay. and talking about you know our biases and why we always have them. Yeah. I, I think you would like uh, David McCraney wrote a book called You Are Now – You Are Not So Smart and then there's another one, You Are Now Less Dumb. Yeah. <laughs> These are the tempting titles, man. As soon as you start thinking about it, like, okay, I'm going to aim this at a general audience. What would be an appropriate title? Hmm. Yeah. You Are Now Less Dumb. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This is good to meet you, Thomas. You too. Thank you so much for having me on and thank you for everything that you guys are doing. Hey, boys, where's your originality, huh? This means war, man. Hey, this is shit. It's shit. Get it up, McFrost. Get it up. It's shit. It's shit.